Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, March 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf came to town and stopped by STAT. We asked him about his first year in the job, FDA's priorities, and the future of Duke basketball after Coach K. Then they're the biggest things to happen in the pharmaceutical industry since COVID-19. The new weight loss drugs are making waves, and Stats Elaine Chen joins us to discuss them. We start with a quick look at the week's other biggest biopharma news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Attention healthcare innovators and biotech enthusiasts. Are you ready to explore the intersection of medicine, biology, and technology? Then mark your calendars for the STAT Breakthrough Summit this spring in San Francisco. This event brings together leaders across the industry to discuss how to unlock the full potential of this exciting new era in medicine. Speakers include Stephen Gillett, the CEO of Verily, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR. These experts will share their insights on how technology and innovation are transforming healthcare for the benefit of patients. Plus, the summit will be led by stat reporters, giving you access to the latest developments in the field and in-depth analysis of the industry. So join us this May 3rd and 4th at the Stat Breakthrough Summit and be a part of the conversations delving into the incredible advancements happening in the field that are shaping the future of healthcare. Learn more and register today for a limited discounted ticket at statnews.com slash summit. We've been a little bit spoiled recently with positive news in the Alzheimer's space, but on Wednesday evening, we got a negative study on a Lilly Alzheimer's drug. Damien, tell us about solanezumab. Yeah, remember, I'm dusting off a big book on my desk marked solanezumab. But <laughs> so this is a medicine that uh, Eli Lilly spent about a decade, maybe more, and in excess of $1 billion trying to prove could be a viable treatment for Alzheimer's disease. The company has since, if not moved on, but progressed other molecules that we've talked about on this podcast that seem to have a higher likelihood of success. However, solanezumab being probably the state-of-the-art circa 2012-13 was the star of this study called the A4 study run out of Harvard, which was pretty ambitious. It enrolled patients who were likely to develop Alzheimer's disease based on having amyloid plaque in their brain detectably, but had not experienced any symptoms whatsoever. So completely asymptomatic patients. And the idea was if you gave them solanezumab over a long period of time, they would be less likely to actually develop the disease Cutting to the lead, which I should have started with, Meg, as you mentioned, that did not work. The study did not work at all, either in terms of measures of cognitive function or in terms of the amyloid plaques in question. And curiously, I saw this news on Wednesday night and thought, well, sure, because most of the neurological world, neuroscientific world has moved on from solanezumab. There are better mousetraps available that do ostensibly the same thing. And yet, Lily's stock price went down, which I... You know, it's probably a fool's errand to try to uh, unpack why stocks move, especially big pharma stocks that are so widely traded and widely held and expensive as Lily's is. But I thought it was curious because really, the ba- if there were bad news baked into this for Lily, it would be if solanezumab did 
have a market effect on amyloid plaques in people's brains, but still had no benefit on the actual clinical outcomes of treatment. But that didn't happen. And the reason that would be bad is because it would suggest that the other molecules, like Lily's denanumab, the one that is now in phase three, which also target amyloid, that they would have less likelihood of success because apparently removing amyloid did not actually have a benefit in this population. But because that didn't happen, the core hypothesis of Lily's whole approach to Alzheimer's disease remains intact. And you can disagree with it if you want, but this study doesn't really affect the conversation. So big sigh of relief for Lily. So Damien, you were just at the American College of Cardiology meeting in New Orleans. Um, What was the most important data you saw there? Well, I don't know what was most important, but what was definitely most intriguing to me was a phase two, a mid-stage study run by Merck of an oral treatment that targets cholesterol. Um, And, you know, cutting through, there's multiple cohorts in the study in different doses, but basically the highest dose reduced patients LDL or bad cholesterol by about 60% with a pill. And this is a pill that targets PCSK9, which we've discussed on this podcast at some length. And the fact that it exists is a sort of chemical engineering, not miracle, but it's a coup of some sort. And its efficacy seems like it could be important going forward. Yeah, we had, you know, Merck's research chief, Dean Lee, on, um, you know, months back to kind of talk about how they were developing this molecule um, and why. And of course, this class of drugs targeting PCSK9 are now injectables. um, And they have shown similar levels of cholesterol lowering. But there is an argument that if you could just take a pill the same way you can you know, take a statin right now, um, that might be way more appealing to people. You have not seen this class of drugs really take off in the way that Wall Street hoped and that, you know, the insurance and PBM space seemed to fear. There were warnings at the time that this would break the healthcare system. Um, and, and really, that hasn't happened. I mean, these the Amgen drug uh, has surpassed a billion dollars in annual sales. The Regeneron one hasn't. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if how this does in phase three. Merck is expected to start that in the second half of 2023. But um, could this make, you know, this class of drugs and the, the power it has with lowering LDL cholesterol um, just more palatable for people? Um, that will be really interesting to watch. Dr. Robert Califf recently marked his one-year anniversary as commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. He happened to be in Boston this week, so we snagged him for a few minutes of podcasting. Commissioner, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thanks. Good to be here. So, as we said, you you know, you you, you just passed through, through your one-year anniversary as FDA commissioner. I wonder, does serving one year as FDA commissioner, does that feel like one year or does it feel like 10 years? <laughs> well, this time around, it's so much more complex than it was in 2016. It feels a bit longer, but the challenges are great and the mission is great. Well, so to that point on the challenges, I know you came in with a list of priorities for the second go-round how is it going? What what have you what do you think has gone right and, and what has proved to be more evasive or more elusive than you might have thought? Well, as, as I said, I think things are much more complicated this time around. The politics are more difficult. There's greater division in the country and the pervasive effect of misinformation is everywhere. But I also just looked at we have over 20 priorities this is separate from all the priorities each center has with its own products. These are overarching issues across the FDA. And I'm, I'm very happy with the progress made on um, 
really all of them. So I feel pretty good about what we've accomplished. The proof will be in the pudding over the next two years, because the first year is getting things in line. Um, the next two years will be about implementing what we are working on. Maybe go through a few of the priorities that you're really focused on, either that you've already started work on and that will continue, or that you're really focused on for the year ahead. Sure. Uh, I mean, the two biggest ones are dealing with misinformation and uh, the evidence generation system in this country. Um, On misinformation, we have a very different and proactive approach at the FDA to trying to pre-bot, rebut, move quickly, respond to information we think is incorrect. But it's also true that um, the Internet is rife with more and more people that are uh, spewing out information which is detrimental to people. And, you know, the proof of it in the U.S. is our decline in life expectancy. So I feel like we've made great progress on misinformation, but the misinformation um, ecosystem is moving faster than we are. So we'll keep working on that. Sorry, just to interrupt really quick. What does the FDA do itself about misinformation? What's the FDA's role there? Well, it starts with um, when we uh, reach a decision based on high quality evidence, thinking ahead about how people might react to it so that um, we put out more uh, comprehensive information that would cover the issues that people are likely to react to. And then um, the minute we put something out now, um, a huge number of people are reactive to it on social media. And by following that and tracking social media, uh, we're reacting more quickly when we think someone has gotten off course or, you know, this would never happen at STAT, of course, but if a news story was incorrect, then uh, we're on the phone quickly to uh, provide the additional information. So there's much more to it than that, and I hope that the uh, world of universities and health systems and um, other folks will pick up their game, too, because that's what it's really going to take to move things in the right direction. So the year's biggest uh, cardiovascular conference just wrapped up in New Orleans. I know you're not allowed to comment on individual drugs in development, but, you know, considering you're a heart doctor by training, I I wonder what you make of the pipeline of new cardiovascular medicines. You know, heart disease remains the number one killer, yet we don't see as many novel therapies as we do in cancer or rare diseases. Uh, Why is that? Well, I used to be really, really exercised about this even recently, but there has been... um, a number of new drugs recently that are disease-modifying drugs in the area of heart failure. I noticed at the ACC there's a new lipid-lowering drug with a different mechanism that, uh, at least according to the clinical trial, has a significant benefit. The uh, obesity, diabetes drugs, uh, really life-saving drugs developed in the last few years. So I think we are on a um, roll now, um, I think, in cardiovascular drugs. Well, we got to figure out how to get them distributed to the right people um, in a more effective way. And again, I particularly point to the obesity drugs as an area where these are entirely um, unexplored pathways um, in terms of uh, pharmacologic intervention that are going to tell us a lot about the biology of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular events related to that. So I think it's really an exciting time. And, you know, I didn't even mention devices, but who would have thought we'd be replacing valves percutaneously and now into this next second and third generation of technologies there. So on that topic, it feels like we're 
entering kind of a new age of medicine, thanks to those powerful weight loss treatments that you mentioned, um, two of which, or well, one of which recently won FDA approval for obesity, another to come, and, and many more in the pipeline. I think a major reason for that change is the agency's decision to deem obesity as a medical indication. There was time in which you know that, that was kind of controversial as to whether you could win FDA approval for a drug with that indication. That hasn't been without controversy. And so I'm curious, what do you think of, of the argument that you know, simply having a BMI, a high BMI, is not in itself a disease to be treated and the sort of social cultural angle of, you know, people's bodies and, and what is a, a medicalized condition and what is not? That is such a complicated question to answer in a short um, podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, in the long run, um, I am very sure that the drugs that are going to be most used are going to be the ones that not only lower body weight, but also lead to better composite clinical outcomes, not just cardiovascular events, but um, uh, less uh, joint difficulty. We could go on and on of, with um, the medical complications that occur uh, during a long course of um, overweight. And so while in the short term, uh, losing weight, you know, is, is the arguments will continue. In the long run, we got to get our sights focused on uh, living longer and being more functional, which is really uh, what this should be all about. Yeah, and I think there'll be some fascinating trials coming up this year, which will seek to answer some of those questions on uh, you know, Novo's drug, for example, which is approved for obesity. Um, I interrupted you earlier as you were outlining the second of your priorities, which was an improving evidence generation. And I wonder along those lines, you know, we also have a question we wanted to ask you about um, your focus on potentially a need to overhaul advisory committee meetings. Um, so maybe kind of combine those answers and as you're thinking about better evidence generation, then also how we bring in experts to um, to help the FDA think about approving drugs. How do you want to change that system? Well, um, so first of all, you know, I think our uh, evidence generation system for early drug and device development is fit for purpose and does the job. We went out 85% of things that don't work in phase one, two, and early phase three trials. Beyond that, uh, we're falling so far short of what our technology can offer now. Why should anyone have to recreate demographics, problem lists, medication lists, major clinical events? They're all captured in digital form now in our health systems. And so, particularly as we're entering this era where CMS is also aware we're spending um, $3.4 trillion on health care with um, outcomes uh, showing a five-year shorter life expectancy than other high-income countries. we got to fill in those evidence gaps, and we can't do it by doing old-fashioned, labor-intensive um, clinical trials. We need to move into the digital world, realizing, of course, that randomization is still really important to get a lot of the answers that we need, but the ornaments that we've hung on those randomization trees of all this extra data and the way we do it, just far too expensive. Now, of course, generating the data is one thing, then we got to consume it, and advisory committees are, should be very helpful there. The public should expect that the FDA is interacting with the outside world and interacting with experts of various types, whether it's patients reflecting their experience or experts in the disease or the um, interventions. And, um, you know, we're working on that. And I, I'd say the main thing that I want to get across is we need those interactions. 
purpose of the advisory committee is not to take a vote. purpose of the advisory committee is to get the thinking of experts about the problem at hand. The FDA is charged with making the decisions. Uh, the advisory committee is advisory. And I think people have gotten far too focused on voting and not focused enough on um, exchanging knowledge and information that can assist the FDA in making its decision and also provide transparency to the public about what the thinking is behind those decisions. So two-part follow-up there. One, when it comes to advisory committee meetings, obviously there's oftentimes a vote. There's a voting question where the, the panelists will be asked you know, to vote on essentially the approvability question. So do you think that would you like to see less of those kinds of sort of penultimate voting questions at adcoms? And then second, you know, the other one of the other issues I think with adcoms is the the people who were invited, the experts who were invited. We often see people who are experts in the field who, for conflict of interest reasons, cannot participate in advisory committees. Um, would you like to see some changes to conflict of interest rules so that you could have more relevant experts weigh in on on these decisions? So first of all, I'd. I'd um would like to see fewer meetings ending up with a hurried vote at the end and everybody rushing out of the room and then somebody claiming that, you know, that's like the decision. It was interesting that you used the word penultimate. I would just prefer it not even be referred to as any any version of ultimate. But what's really important is the thinking that goes on and making sure that the committee has a chance to review and interact um, to bring out, bring out the thinking. And um, in terms of conflict of interest, we're, we're going to take a step back and look at all of that. It's particularly an issue with rare diseases, as you know, where, I mean, show me an expert in a rare disease who's not working on a therapeutic intervention. You know, it's it's, it's funny you say that because I, I think there a lot of oftentimes when I watch the rare disease advisory committees and you you know, you look at the panel and, and not to denigrate anybody who's invited to the panel. Obviously, they're, you know, they're doing a public service by, by appearing in these ad cons, but you know that there are experts because they've participated in clinical trials or in the development or consulted, um, they can't they can't participate in this. Yeah. So what I want to do is have a discussion that's independent of any particular disease or problem about what the principles are. So we can then go back and apply the principles, which may be different for um, drugs or devices, for example, that are for very broad application to a general population. There are going to be a lot of experts who are unconflicted. And for some other diseases, it may be quite different. That's only part of it. We're going to look at the whole stem to stern. We had an executive committee meeting at FDA of the leadership. Everyone wanted to work on the advisory committee system and make it better. So, Commissioner, you probably won't remember this, but in, I think, 2018, I ran into you on a street corner in Austin, Texas, uh, and I introduced myself and told you where I worked, and you were very polite, but y- your your parting words were, I think, for stat, you know what you guys should be covering is this whole right to try thing. And people may recall um, that was, at the time, pending legislation that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a lot of people perceived as an effort to basically reduce the authority of the FDA, and a lot of people took that further into, you know, therefore, potentially imperil public health. So my question is, not about right to try, but rather... Today, were that interaction to happen, what would you tell me or some reporter, this is what you should be covering? This is the the challenge or, or the risk to the FDA or to public health in general that is not getting enough attention. You just cannot give too much attention to the misinformation problem. And um, it's it's just gotten to be a huge issue because of the way social media and the internet have developed. I don't think people are fundamentally 
any different. We had snake oil salesmen back in the days when you advertised in magazines to get your uh, word out if you were a snake oil salesman. And we have a lot of legitimate argument and debate, and it's so hard for the average person to sort out when it's legitimate argument and debate and when someone is posing as an expert when they're really not. So there's a lot to cover there. I hope you guys spend a lot of time on it and help sort it out, because if you just look at COVID as an example, most of the people dying of COVID since the vaccines were unnecessary deaths that could have been prevented with a free um, treatment, either uh, vaccination alone or vaccination plus an antiviral. There's a there's a lot of animosity towards uh, public health officials these days. Uh, it's part of this, you know, kind of part parcel of some with misinformation. Um, are you seeing that as you try to attract people to come to work at the FDA or retain people at the FDA, people that you need to complete the mission of the agency? Is that are you running up against that? Is that a, is that an issue for you? So first of all, um, I'll just say that we do better in hiring than most people think. We actually do pretty well in hiring. But there is a trend that I've noticed as I call people, particularly for high-level jobs, that um, they're very concerned about the public, not just the public scrutiny, it's really the attacks, uh, the physical threats, uh, the threats to family. Um, this has gotten out of hand, and people are very aware of it. Um I like to think that appealing to patriotism is a good, uh, and to public health is a good antidote to that. For the most part, it has been, but um, it's an aspect of the sort of general issues and misinformation, which is completely um, out of hand right now. I want to ask about the baby formula uh, shortage. I think that's that's kind of escaped the headlines in recent months, but. I do think there is still difficulty for people out there trying to find formula. Even recently. What's the status of that shortage, and how can the FDA help ensure that it doesn't happen again and that manufacturing is, is safe so that babies are safe? So, First of all, our um, in-stock rates are back to where they were before the um, recall, and I think there are some areas, particularly in rural America, where the distribution has still not gotten back to where it needs to be. And the manufacturers um, have consolidated the variety that they make in order to focus on producing the maximum amount possible. So while things are a lot better, it's uh, far from perfect, and some people are still having trouble. Uh, voluntarily, the companies are giving us their production data and their distribution data so that we can plan and intervene um, when uh, problems occur, something that we couldn't do before because we didn't have that data. And there's always a, a balance. We have to make sure the formula is safe and that it's nutritious. Um, but we need to keep the supply up. And so there's a lot of work that a whole team of people do in working with the manufacturers to to stay on top of that. But there are larger issues that are well beyond the FDA. This is a consolidated industry that depends uh, largely on a few um, plants that are older. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll need to really work on the industrial policy here. Um, the WIC program um, is responsible for over 50% of the formula, and uh, the companies that are in the WIC program have a dominant position in the market, making it harder for others to come in. And that's not an easy one to solve. We're not. Uh, this is not an issue for FDA to decide. So, you know, I learned early in my career to never say, will never happen again. 
Um, but we're doing a lot that will make it very, very unlikely this is going to happen again. So let's end on a sports note. Uh, Commissioner, you are a huge fan of Duke basketball. Uh, we're recording this interview on Monday, so it's just ahead of the ACC tournament. Uh, how are you feeling about Duke's March Madness odds this year, particularly in this sort of post-Coach K era? Yeah, you know, there was a great interview. Uh, I've always loved listening to Chris Wallace, and he interviewed Coach K last night. It's worth listening to if people get a chance. And, you know, our kids grew up with Coach K's uh, kids, so it's been fun for me to follow the teams. I feel great right now. You know, it's a super talented team. They had a lot of injuries early in the year. It's John Shire's a new coach. They're in their stride right now, and they've been on a win streak. For the big tournament, where, where, do, you, where do you think Duke ends up? I think Duke will probably get into the Elite Eight, but um, it's going to be hard. It's really just a play of chance, I think, as to who gets in that Final Four. Well, Commissioner Caleb, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Good to be with you. This week, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers made headlines when it acquired a telehealth company that will enable its members to access prescription weight loss drugs. And we've talked about this class before, GLP-1s or so-called Incretin mimetics. And yes, we are still trying to make Incretin happen. They are Novo Nordisk's Ozempic and Wagovi and Eli Lilly's Manjaro. These drugs are becoming a bigger and bigger story, both culturally and on Wall Street. And STAT has started a series called The Obesity Revolution to explore their impact. The first installment came out this week, and reporter Elaine Chen joins us now to discuss. Elaine, welcome back to the Read Out Loud. Thanks so much for having me on again. So maybe like the 10,000-foot the view and sort of the framing of your story is that obesity long perceived or long described as the result of poor lifestyle choices is now being much more widely considered to be a disease that can be treated and ought to be treated. So how has the arrival of these new and very powerful medicines changed that old narrative? Yeah, so a lot of people feel that because these new class of medications are so effective at helping people lose weight, uh, that's helping change the narrative that obesity is not a result of a failing of willpower, but it's actually a disease that has a biological basis. Because if you can treat um, something effectively with a medication, that just shows that the underlying problem itself, you know, was a biological problem in the first place. And of course, that's a message that's really being embraced by Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, and maybe even more than embraced, but but uh, forwarded and pushed along by these companies um, that, you know, this is a, a biological disease that can now be treated with uh, a medicine. Uh, these early ones uh, are mostly injectables, and they need to be taken chronically. And of course, you know we've seen the stories that weight rebounds if these drugs are stopped. So what do critics say is wrong with this message and its framing? There are several concerns about uh, not so much kind of this message itself. I think a lot of uh, doctors in the medical community believe that, you know, obesity is biologically based, but the concern is taking the message too far. So one aspect is we have a big financial constraints in terms of, you know, how the system can pay for all these drugs for everybody who's currently eligible for them. Because we just feasibly probably can't treat everybody who is eligible for these drugs, there needs to be a better way of figuring out who's most likely to experience complications from obesity, who might need these uh, drugs the most. There's also concern that 
um, as these drugs become more widespread, the medical community might start to ignore the environmental causes of surging obesity rates, like lack of access to healthy food or physical activity. And then lastly, there's also concern that this message um, could further contribute to weight stigma by telling people, you know, this is a disease, there's something wrong with you, and it might even um, be harmful for people at risk of eating disorders. So sticking with this topic of the way sort of pharma is framing uh, these obesity treatments, uh, in your story, you report that Novo is funding coursework on obesity for medical schools. Um, what did Novo tell you about this effort and what's been the response from critics? It's more rare for pharmaceutical companies to um, get involved at this level. It's really common for them to fund um, continuing medical education for, you know, already licensed doctors. But to get at the level of medical schools is very rare. Novo said that all of their educational activities are non-promotional and developed by third parties. Um, but still, um, some experts we asked about this were really startled and said that Pharma companies should not go anywhere near medical school curricula, especially medical students are a really captive audience um, and, you know, don't have the experience that, you know, licensed doctors do. Um, and, you know, in, in addition to that, uh, there's one doctor who, uh, you know, through a grant from Novo is working to actually tailor and integrate the curricula with 10 medical schools. So, you know, getting pretty deep and working directly with some medical schools. So I want to get back to the the Weight Watchers, formerly WW uh, News, that we mentioned, because it seemed it seemed like that single headline kind of encapsulated a lot of the concerns uh, that you wrote about in your story and that have been articulated by people around the world as these drugs have risen, which is that there had seemed to be a gradual cultural and somewhat medical pivot away from a focus on weight specifically. And Weight Watchers, a famous brand of the 1990s, dropping the word weight from its from its name seemed to be illustrative of that. And we've seen this in marketing and, and in just the way we talk about people's bodies has shifted over the past decade. And then these drugs arrive and they are very, very powerful at reducing people's weight. And suddenly it seems like the culture is gradually reconfiguring itself back to that old model. And then, you know, Weight Watchers as as sort of uh, a canary in the coal mine, perhaps, for that change is not only calling itself that again, but buying a company such that it can get in on the business of helping people access these medicines. There's a really long-winded way of saying you know, what are the implications of, for example, you know, telehealth access to these drugs about people being able to potentially get on them without going through the normal means of having it prescribed by a physician who actually knows them and has seen them in person? Yeah, the Weight Watchers news is really interesting. It seems like there's been an explosion of telehealth companies trying to get in on this, you know, potentially goldmine of the GLP-1 medications. Um, I think that, you know, on one hand, people could say that it makes it a lot easier for people to get access to these medications to be able to just get them through telehealth. But um, as, you know, various um, reporters have reported, uh, there are some issues with um, offering these through telehealth, such as, you know, how well can you verify kind of who, like, your customer is and also how do you kind of offer something that helps them beyond um you know just them regularly going to the doctor like a lot of these telehealth programs say they offer lifestyle intervention and counseling but how well can you really do that you know through telehealth and then they also say they can help you better in, uh, navigate insurance difficulties but again like 
how how much better is that than just going to a regular doctor? So I think a lot of these telehealth programs still are trying to figure out what value they add. Mm. And to that point, you know, about the sort of explosion of these medicines and their potential ubiquity, you know, Wall Street analysts are saying this could be the biggest class of drugs maybe ever. So with so many people taking them, and perhaps some for long periods, I've seen comparisons to statins. You know, you have to stay on them to keep your cholesterol low. With these, maybe you have to stay on them to keep your weight uh, off. So how much is understood about the safety of these drugs, particularly over the long term? Because you and Matt Herper, your co-writer on the story, did this great uh, look at the history of obesity drugs and the fact that there it's been plagued with safety issues, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people, because of the fraught history of weight loss medications, are um, kind of on the lookout to see if we're going to see any big safety concerns with these class of medications. Um, so far, the side effects seem relatively okay. You know, there's nausea, diarrhea at the beginning. Um, there's concern about maybe potentially rare cases of uh, pancreatitis. Um, but then, you know, we, we still need more data to see what the long-term effects are. And then, you know, something else that I've recently heard about is, uh, especially for older people taking the medications, there's some concern that, um, they could lose lean mass too quickly, which could lead to, uh, them becoming more frail. And so that's, um, kind of a concern because these drugs, when they help people lose weight, it's both, uh, fat mass and lean mass. Interestingly, that you point that out. I'm sorry if somebody else was about to say something, but like that's one of the things that I noted with the Weight Watchers story is that they emphasize, at least in the Wall Street Journal article, you know, which is the first, you know, they they sort of got the story on it. Um, they pointed out the combination with the counseling that they provide would point people towards sort of high protein diets and and you know weight training that could help them maintain their muscle mass, uh, maybe to counter balance some of those effects of the rapid weight loss you see with these drugs. So that's a really interesting point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so Meg mentioned the statins and, and, you know, the statins became huge drugs, not only because they lower cholesterol, because then, you know, there were studies that showed that lowering cholesterol led to better outcomes for patients, uh, fewer heart attacks, uh, prolonged survival, you know, real things that really matter to people in the long term. Um, what do we, what kind of data do we have on that with these weight loss drugs? And if we don't, when will we know whether you know weight loss unto itself will lead to better outcomes for for people? Yeah. So these medications, which were originally developed for diabetes, uh, we do have data that show that for patients with diabetes taking them, there uh, is a reduced risk of uh, cardiovascular events. But we don't yet have data on. Um, cardiovascular events for people just with obesity. Uh, there is a big trial from Novo Nordisk that's um, expected to, uh, we're supposed to expect it to hear results later this year. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, we, you know, that could be a really pivotal trial. Eli Lilly is also having one underway, but that one's going to take a bit longer time. So those data on long-term outcomes for this class of medicines of people with obesity are important, obviously, scientifically for us to understand how well they work, but are also massively important to both the business and economic angles of this in that, you know, multiple people have said, and, and you have in your story, that for these drugs to get widespread insurance coverage, they will have to succeed in improving long-term outcomes. And then the other side of that is, if they do, you know, there's in excess of 100 million people, I think, just in the United States who might be candidates for therapy. How are we going to pay for all of that. So 
I, I don't know how to like frame that as a question to you, but like, you know, what should we be thinking about in terms of the monetary angle of this a- as this story moves forward? Yeah, the financial constraints is going to be a big issue. Um, currently, say for Wagovi, um, almost half of the U.S. population is eligible for it. And um, ICER did some analysis that showed that at the current net price, um, as soon as 0.1% of the eligible population takes the drug, payers would have to either shift money around or increase premiums. So it would it would it would have an effect. And even if the cost comes down to what ICER deems a fair cost effective price of around seven thousand five hundred a year, still they estimate that less than one percent could take the drug without the health system starting to get pressured. So um I don't know, I don't have an answer to how to <laughs> deal with that, but just going back to what I said earlier, I think that's why doctors think we need to think hard about who needs the drugs the most um, and, and focus efforts there. You can imagine that there's like actuaries inside insurance companies right now who are basically freaking out yeah. Over, yeah. over this entire market. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ebonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you prefer Rob Kalis' professorial bow ties or Scott Gottlieb's funky socks. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.